we could not participate in the research at all. I have no idea who the respondents were. Um, I still don't. I never will. It's pretty enlightening to go through what we thought we were doing for 25 years and then what outside researchers are doing with anonymous surveys. So there's definitely a wall of protection and secrecy and anonymity that hopefully allowed everybody to be very open and honest with their discussions. Hey everybody, especially those who watch this on the playback, I wanna give just a tiny, tiny bit of context, but I don't wanna spend too much time here. Uh, Eric Helms, research fellow at, in Auckland, New Zealand, is always uh, running graduate students through his program. And two of them decided to do a study on coaching relationships, one from the client perspective, one from the coach's perspective, in what is quickly becoming normalized, but is still relatively new uh, as, a, as a practice, which is online nutrition coaching. And the first one that we are looking at, uh, last week, we went through the, the first, what I would say is kind of a half, which is the, the qualitative response, which included very in-depth interviews with former clients of my company, uh, the Diet Doc. So we have about a 25-year database uh, which which may be a little bit misleading. Um, I don't even think we started collecting email and that sort of thing until maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years into our company. And I think that kind of showed up in the fact that the longest client that had started with us was 13 years ago. So if you are interested, you can go back and find a research review from last week, which talked about those qualitative uh, notes, uh, specifically looking at the importance of the relationship. And I probably wasn't quite aware that there was a, a, quite a bit of research on, um, on this, what, you know, what's, what's called a therapeutic alliance. And, you know, go figure, there's actually, you know, some out there. And Rosemary Hunter, Dr. Helms student, graduate student, wanted to investigate that a little bit more and, and look at, are there any correlations we can draw uh, does having an, a coach of any sort, we say online, but obviously for a lot of people, it is local. You could meet with somebody like this in person, but there is a lot of support online, digitally, apps, platforms, things like that. And there was, uh, you know, I think some really cool stuff to learn. This week, we're going to skip forward to about halfway through the study because this was a, a four-part study. The, the second half dealt with the, the, the quantitative elements which is really looking at how much weight did you lose? Were you effective at maintaining it? And even to qualify for this study, which was a survey study, you have to have lost at least 10% of your body weight and have kept it off for a year. That is in research what is considered um, sustained weight loss. And so, you know, you can kind of do the math with your own weight and, and decide, you know, what 10% would be like and then maintaining that for a year. So a lot of little nuances that we're going to go through, but that in itself, because I always like to use these as opportunities to explain the process of research to our own clients and coaches and viewers. So I'll pick out some of the things uh, that, that stood out to me through this, as well as the ultimate results, which I think uh, have some, some pretty, pretty interesting points. Um, but right off the bat, something that will come up later in this presentation 
is that every single person that uh, was qualified for the study, because there were about, I think, 100, either 113 or 123 people who submitted applications, 84 were accepted. The people who didn't, uh, who weren't, did not meet those criteria. And I'm assuming it was in those details, the, the one-year mark and, and maintaining 10%. Uh, so when you're looking at the questions asked and the correlations explored, that's a pretty specific database. This was not, hey, if you've been a client of any coach at the Diet Doc in the last 25 years, you qualify. These are specifically clients who have lost at least 10% of their weight and kept it off for a year. So as I said, that's going to come into play in how we compare it to other research uh, projects that have been undertaken. So the effect of client practitioner relationships on weight loss and weight maintenance in online weight loss. Here we go. Um, skip that. So th this getting into uh, this, this is chapter four in the study. And again, because this is in dissertation format, this is something submitted to a dissertation committee. Uh, there is a lot of narrative, a lot of summarization, and it's broken up into chapters. So in this uh, I think it's a five chapter dissertation. We're, we're in chapter four here, but just a, a couple brief things that I want to read just to understand exactly what they were investigating. Participants in the preceding interviews, those are the long form interviews, described developing strong long-term relationships with their practitioners, learning new weight control tools and habits, and building knowledge around why these tools and habits were important. In addition, participants described their practitioners as helping and inspiring them to assimilate health and fitness into their new identity. The qualitative themes developed during these interviews in chapter three align with the quantitative findings on weight loss and weight maintenance in the broader literature and thus warranted a quantitative exploration of the client-practitioner relationship in online weight loss clients of the diet doc. Thus, the purpose of chapter four was to quantitatively explore aspects of the client-practitioner relationship and its associations with weight-related behaviors cognitive eating behaviors, weight loss, and weight maintenance. Um, therefore, the aim of the study was to explore the relationships between, I want to see if there's anything in here. Okay, it's something I want to explain a little bit down the line here. What, what I, I want to pause here just for a second and explain what, why it's important. Matter of fact, I'm going to come back up here, uh, the way Rosemary phrased this. Um, first of all, as, as a coach myself, which at the time I didn't call myself a coach, I, I was just a guy, uh, somebody who, you know, I had my, my first doctorate in nutrition. I was a physical therapist. I had bought a health facility and my goal locally was to create a little bit of a new model for, I didn't want to call it a wellness facility, but it also was more than a gym. So people could come to this health club. I mean, obviously it was a place people could buy memberships and they could come work out there, but it was heavily staff uh, driven. So in about a 2,500 square foot space in Evansville, Indiana, 26, 27 years ago, I went from just me purchasing this facility, which had one person there, there was a manager and I bought this facility that person ended up leaving. That's that's who kind of brokered the deal for me to purchase that. And within about two years, I had close to a dozen staff, full-time and part-time personal trainers. I was managing and developing a nutrition program. 
And remember, especially back then, if you if you weren't an RD or an MD, it was incredibly prohibitive. But I was following the law as closely as I could, which was making sure I was doing nutrition education, uh, was probably bending the rules a little bit in that I was giving people macronutrients as a as a distributive profile, as a suggestion. If I were you, here's what I would do. I've always been very careful with language like that because of the law. And, uh, you know, we had physical therapy services, things like that. So this was a health facility that really focused on results. At that time, I was writing for a lot of magazines and I was developing the whole methodology of macronutrient tracking. Oops, my camera just decided to take a dump there. Um, and flexible dieting and all of that. And so I was writing about it in some magazines and it was, it was a whole different era because it was, it was being built on the fly. And I think, I think this paragraph here by Rosemary really explains this because at that time, this didn't exist. Just look at some of the, the, the language here. Um, you know, she, she's drawing from comments from the qualitative interview she did with, with, with interviews from our former clients. And they described developing strong long-term relationships with their practitioners. They learned weight control tools and habits. They built knowledge around these, these tools and habits. Uh, they described their practitioners as helpful in inspiring and helping them assimilate uh, a, a health and fitness into a new identity. I mean, that was my goal. You know, when I was sitting across my desk from clients 25 years ago, that is exactly what I wanted that to be. I had no idea this was going to create an entire industry. I technically didn't think it was possible because of those prohibitive laws. I knew I was skirting the edges, even with a doctorate in nutrition. But as soon as we started to formulate a plan to license, and, and I talked to an intellectual property attorney, we went through all the different options and so forth. Uh, I, I knew right away I had to contractually employ a medical doctor or a registered dietitian. I chose to do both. And so we have continually had that kind of a, a, a coverage to make it more acceptable. Now, 25 years later, it, it's just kind of a possession is nine tenths of the law scenario where even state, legislat state legislation in many states have softened their laws. And so nutrition education is a little bit more bifurcated from medical nutrition therapy. And so now you see certifications and all kinds of things that, that seem to almost disengage from dietetics and medicine. Now, nutrition coaching is more seen as an adjunct to personal training. Personal trainers don't have to be licensed in a state. They are not prohibited in any way, except you know, we, we, everybody uh, has to abide by negligence, you know, common sense and so forth. So that, that's just where the state of the industry is. And I think that's why somebody like Rosemary has this uh, desire to investigate how it's actually going. The industry is that young. There are very few standards of practice. People like me and some of my friends and colleagues who are in research, like Dr. Helms, are trying to establish those. But again, there aren't even any governing agencies, governing bodies. So, so to be doing research on the, the 
you know, any kind of evidence we can draw on how our nutrition coach is doing, how are they perceived? What are the results? Are they getting anywhere in terms of what people could do from just self-directed weight loss? So, so that, that's why I think this is really important. And as Eric Helms told me, you know, this could really be the first step. These two research pieces could be the first step in really exploring and creating a new type of research uh, where it really does establish those standards of practice that I'm describing, you know, that we're kind of uh, missing. So therefore, the aim of the study was to explore the relationships between weight-related behaviors, eating behaviors, and aspects of the client-practitioner relationship, including the client-perceived quality of the client-practitioner relationship, frequency of contact during the maintenance phase, and practitioner help with assimilating health and fitness into the client's new life. So that was all part of that qualitative measurement. Now on the quantitative side, specifically the research hypothesis, hypotheses that were measured aspects of the client-practitioner relationship would be positively associated with weight loss, weight maintenance, and cognitive restraint. So anytime you see that CR, think cognitive restraint. Uh, am I using flexible restraint or rigid restraint? But it's a, it's a thoughtful, willful restraint. I'm calorie restricting. I'm paying attention to my food. I'm tracking my macros. I'm doing something. There's some, it's not ad libitum eating. I'm, I'm restraining in some way. And, uh, and then the, if somebody is exhibiting cognitive restraint, uh, then there, there should be a negative association with, with uh, emotional eating, that's that EE, or uncontrolled eating. So if you see those, um, uh, what am I saying here? Acronyms, you know, you know what they're talking about. Cognitive restraint, emotional eating, uncontrolled eating. It was further hypothesized that both the frequency of weight-related behaviors and cognitive restraint would be positively associated with weight loss and weight maintenance, while uh, uncontrolled eating and emotional eating would be inversely associated. So, so there is her premise. She is saying, you know, we think it's, we think it's obvious that if you're working with a coach, and this is a good coach, then you should have less uncontrolled eating, less emotional eating, and you should have better cognitive restraint. Like that's what a coach is there for. We think that's obvious. That's the premise. That's what we're going to study. But as you know, when you actually put uh, all of this through the, the research machinery, you don't always get what you expect. And, and that's why you do the research. So a cross-sectional anonymous online survey of successful weight loss maintainers who consulted with a nutrition coach to reach a target body weight was conducted, specifically associations between aspects of client-perceived, client-practitioner relationships, eating behaviors and cognitions, and both weight loss and how successful the respondents were at reaching their goal were explored. Survey participants were current or former clients of the Diet Doc, an evidence-based weight loss coaching franchise in the U.S., which trains nutrition coaches to align with the best practices for weight loss. So... A uh, couple more things on the method, and, and you're, I mean, you're going to see why I picked these apart here. Uh, I already mentioned that they had to have lost 10% or more of their body weight with us and then have maintained that. Obviously, we you know, could not participate in the research, which is worth mentioning at all. Like, like We were not involved at all. I have no idea who the respondents were. Um, I still don't. I never will. Um, you know, I was just, all I could do was give our database to the researchers and that was it. I never had any contact with anybody else. Didn't even know when the study would be done. Um, I was notified, like, here it is. It's already been published, done. So 
I'm, I'm exploring this with you guys. It's, uh, it's pretty enlightening to go through what we thought we were doing for 25 years. And then what outside researchers are doing with anonymous surveys. So there's definitely a wall of protection and secrecy and anonymity that hopefully allowed everybody to be very, very, uh, you know, open and honest with their discussions. Um, so the section one of this survey included the demographics and their self-reported data on weight and goal weight and total weight lost. Uh, section two focused on the client perceived client practitioner relationship and included a Likert scale on the quality of client practitioner relationship, poor to excellent, the frequency of contact, which, which uh, they, they, Rosemary did pull this out and, and it shows up a couple times that frequency of contact is of course different than quality. You know, frequency is how many interactions are you having? Um, I, I, I don't want to say, well, let me, let me put it this way. Cause it comes up again later on as well. It was kind of a normal thing to have a weekly check-in back then. And I think the reason I did it that way was because a lot of our clients were local to begin with 25 years ago, and you just can't drag somebody in three or four times a week, or even if they were coming in our facility and engaged in training, you know, for my schedule and theirs, it was a weekly check-in. Yeah, I have to be honest and say 25 years ago, by the way, email wasn't even a thing yet. And so, you know, this really was, uh, you know, in person, but very quickly, you know, people could email and email even back then was a little bit more like snail mail. You know, if you recall people, you, you didn't just, you didn't have a smartphone. So you weren't checking it every time your phone dings. It was more something you did at the end of the day, like, oh, went to work, did this, ate dinner, getting ready for bed. Let me check my email. It was literally like snail mail. So a weekly check-in was kind of normal. Today, with apps and communication and, and all kinds of, of, of digital portals to communicate, I think a lot of coaches can do more than that. And there's almost a constant flow of support. And I've tried to drive that as I'm certifying and mentoring coaches. I talk about those cultural expectations that are so different now. And yet I still see that old standard uh, because that's what was the norm 25 years ago. That was diet doc 1.0. That was nutrition coaching 1.0. It's still very, very normal to see people say, oh, this is my weekly check-in. This is my weekly check-in. Everybody talks about a weekly check-in. I still have a formal weekly assessment and review with my clients, but in our app, I'm available Monday through Friday. And I do live support chats three days a week, like a, like a professor has, you know, section hours. So I personally think that frequency of contact now can be very helpful, but you are going to see some interesting data on that coming up. So just, just keep that in mind, quality different than frequency, but Rosemary thought it was important to throw frequency in there, which I thought ended up being pretty brilliant. So the identity question was based on qualitative results from previous study. And this is a, this is a really cool learning point for you guys in population, in, in how you select the subjects. And in case I miss it later, we're not, we're not out of time. I'm going to mention it now. 
in the qualitative portion of this research study, Rosemary found that all the respondents, and she did 45 to 60 minute interviews with these people. It's, it's a literal interview process with a free flowing communication. Almost every single person talked about how their coach emphasized becoming a new person. And, and I mean, these words have come out of my mouth a million times. It, it's something that I have trained our coaches and our consultants to, to consider for 25 years. We talk about it a lot in these research reviews in the transition from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. We talk a lot about goal attainment, goal pursuit, and so forth. That comes up later directly in Rosemary's work, but that came through loud and clear in the qualitative interviews where, where our clients said that was really important to them, that they were creating this new identity. I'm integrating into this kind of a fitness and health community. That's what I love about my coach and the peers I'm meeting, and maybe they're part of a new facility. And that was a big, 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 big deal. But on the quantitative side, when we look at the actual stats that they got from these surveys, it was one of the least correlated variables. And here's why. This is what Rosemary surmised. And like I said, I have it in a slide coming up. These were already people who had succeeded. This is where it comes into play that these are people who had lost 10% at least of their goal of their body weight as a goal, and they kept it off for over a year. So that identity was already achieved. The six people that they interviewed that Rosemary interviewed for the long-term process, that wasn't necessarily part of the criteria. So she just thought that uh, as just a little bit of a narrative sidebar, um, since it was so heavily noted in the qualitative interviews, but then in the quantitative data, it didn't show up or didn't show up as a correlation. She said, I, I think, first of all, you could look at that as a positive thing. Like it was actually actualized. Those people had assumed such a new identity. That's why they were the successful clients. That's why they were the ones who had already succeeded in maintaining their weight loss goal. So it was no longer on their mind. They weren't pursuing a new identity. They had achieved it. So I wanted to bring that out because again, that goes into how you may consume research, how you may read things and say, well, that was important or it wasn't, or that showed up in the results and that didn't, you know, you always have to kind of wind your way back through to who the subjects were, how are they qualified? How, how were they interviewed? What were the questions asked? Cause if you're not asking, you know, the right questions, you know, objectively, then you could get different results. So anyway, um, so then the third section asked about the frequency of nine different weight-related behaviors and the fourth section probe eating behaviors as measured with the three-factor eating questionnaire, which is a standard um, you know, survey that's kind of accepted in, in research in, in this particular industry. Um, backing up just a second, though, the nine weight-related behaviors I'm going to be mentioning here in a few minutes. This, this reminds me a little bit of, of how typical research is done in our industry. And I always come back to the National Weight Control Registry because that's an ongoing study where they look at these kinds of things and they ask similar questions. They, they want people to kind of rank the things they do. What are the habits you engage in? Do you exercise three times a week, five times a week, an hour a day? Do you weigh yourself daily or weekly? Do you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner? Do you eat intermittently fast? Like they go through as many facets as they can to see how we can correlate who succeeds, what are the most common behaviors. So that was 
cool that that was, uh, you know, an entire category of this four section study. So here's how the demographics worked out. As I mentioned, there were there were 84 who ended up qualifying pretty much across the board, uh, people in their 20s and 30s, 30s and 40s, 40s and 50s. And then from the 50s and 60s, it shoots up a little bit. And then even, uh, man, we had three people respond who were above 75 years old, 75 to 84. Um, uh, strong dominance towards women. I think that's pretty normal, 65 and 18 uh, 78% versus 22%. That's, I, you know, I, I've always thought in our company specifically, we, we get much closer to a 50, 50 split of male and female. Uh, you know, my coaching population seems to always be about 50, 50. I think, I think for women coaches, it probably does skew a little bit more toward the female side. Some, some women feel more comfortable working with a female coach. Um, but at least in this general stat line, it was all the way back to kind of an 80-20 split, which is pretty pretty typical in our, in our industry. Um, so the standard weight loss among these people, uh, 11.6 kilograms. So you're looking at about 25 pounds that the average person lost and had kept off for a year. Um, 51 were currently, at the time of the survey, were still actively losing. 32 were not. That is important too. So this is another thing that comes up. I, I had to, once I read deeper into the study and Rosemary had elicited, uh, you know, a couple points of interest that, that she had to interpret some of the, the conclusions, some of the results. And it came back to this. She noted a difference in the fact that people who are currently still losing versus people who had kind of been finished and they're just kind of settled into a maintenance phase, that became a very noted uh, demarcation in some of the results when, when you get to some of the quantitative things we're going to talk about. In the next couple of slides, we're going to talk about two of the things that they really looked for, which were uh, percentage of weight regain. So even among people who had met their goal, uh, specifically for this study, they had lost at least 10% of their body weight and kept it off. There is still some weight regain, you know, a couple pounds or a little bit more, but that's, that's something that Rosemary looked at a percentage of weight regain. Uh, and then there's also a relative weight lost and relative weight loss is where we're getting into a greater, more specific percentage of their body weight. So, you know, if I lost 10 pounds versus somebody else losing 10 pounds versus somebody else losing 10 pounds, there, there's a relative difference, age, gender, body weight, body mass, BMI, that kind of thing. So, so those are things that are going to come up here a little bit in the stats. Uh, there we are. It was actually 114. I was wrong on both counts. Uh, 114 responses and 83 were the ones that were, were qualified. Um, so percent of weight regain affected by age, sex, currently losing weight status and weight loss. So now we're going to get into some of the questions asked in this first category. And Rosemary wanted to see if any of these factors, if she could find a cor correlate. So, so a linear regression in, in statistical analysis is basically looking at one variable and seeing, can we relate it? Is there a linear, you know, correlation to, to the outcome. And, um, you know, she looked at current age, gender, whether the individual, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, was still losing weight, 
or the amount of weight loss. If I had lost 50 pounds or 100 pounds or 200 pounds or 10 pounds, did that affect you know my ultimate results? Uh, which is very interesting. I, I've, I've been having this conversation with a client of mine who has lost about 10 pounds and her goal is to lose 10 more pounds. So she came to me with a goal of losing 20 pounds and she is frustrated and stunned that she sees other clients of mine who lost 150 pounds or 120 pounds or 70 pounds. A couple of her colleagues, which is how she heard about me, you know, they lost 30 and 40 pounds. And she's like, holy crap, why is it taking, you know, I lost 10 pounds pretty easily. Why is this last 10 pounds not coming off as easily? Well, as a percent of weight loss, uh, you know, there, that's a factor. You get into your body composition and so forth. But uh, perhaps even in just motivation, you know, I just created an assertion that it may be a percent of body weight that makes it a little bit tougher kind of leaning into metabolic set point theory. Um, but maybe it's just mindset. Maybe it's, you know, not as meaningful. Like I've only got 10 pounds to lose. It's not that big of a driving motivation as somebody who's trying to quote, save their own life, you know, from, from morbid obesity. Um, but here's, what's interesting. Uh, their statistical model revealed there was no significant interaction between the independent variables and percent weight regain, showing that this particular model of, of asking age, sex, currently losing weight and weight loss was, was not a clear predictor. So, so percent weight regain. With 83 subjects, I think that's enough people that you would see some correlation if it was there. So again, relating this back to our subjects, diet.clients who already have said they really valued their strong relationship with a the coach. They reiterated that, that education was emphasized. They learned a ton. They felt very well taken care of. They felt educated and empowered. They felt inspired. Um, it wasn't like, men, women, gender, age from 18 years old to 84 years old, um, you know, how much weight they had lost or not, they, that would just, they just weren't factors. So I think that's kind of good news. Um, the fact that across those variables, however we performed, it was consistent. There wasn't a certain demographic that, that was completely outshining or underperforming compared to another. So that's the first step that they, they looked at, Rosemary. Um, then how is relative weight loss? So that first one was percentage of weight regain. So now this one, the same variables looking at, at relative weight loss. So now, now we can look at, did I lose 10% of my body weight or 20% or 50%? Like did, did that have any, any correlation um, again to age, gender, et cetera? And again, you know, not really a clear predictor. So we can just kind of wipe those off the board and say, for better or worse, they just they just weren't uh, correlated strongly. So then here we get into something that I'm more interested in. And I think this was kind of the central hub of, of the entire project. How were uh, percent of weight regain and, and um, relative weight loss affected by coaching quality, frequency, and identity? 
So the linear regression models were then performed to explore the effects of quality of the client practitioner relationship, frequency of contact and assimilation of health and fitness new into new identity on both, uh, I, I, I keep stumbling on these acronyms, I read them, uh, percent weight regain and relative weight loss. The, the, the resulting model for percent weight regain was a clear predictor, which explains 16% of the variance. And it all came down to the quality of the relationship and the frequency of support that both uh, contributed to that model. However, identity assimilation did not, which is why I mentioned that earlier. Um, in the qualitative interviews, that was a big theme. And here, it just didn't seem to be mentioned because they were, as, as Rosemary surmised, just too far down the road where they had assumed that identity change already. So, so here's what she's finding, which is, to be fair, her, her hypothesis going in that a good coaching relationship would matter. And so those who did better, those who actually lost more weight, they had a higher percent uh, of weight, you know, maintenance success. Um, they, they, you know, even the relative weight loss, those who dug deeper and in, in got more work done, the stronger the coaching relationship, the stronger the results. So this was her first clear predictor of, of you know, some kind of correlation. And like I said, this is a little bit heavy. That's why I mentioned already, we may run out of time. I'm, I'm nervous about the amount of content here. Um, but then the linear regressions were then performed to explore the effects of the nine different weight related behaviors. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to list these. So this is a new part of the research project. And she was looking at, I don't want to say they're random uh, because they show up a lot in literature. Uh, they, they, you know, looking at, you know, indicators of success. So eating out frequency, how many times you go out to eat, eating with others besides just yourself, eating breakfast that always shows up, uh, how many meals per day, your eating rate or speed, eating home cooked meals frequently, uh, how often do you weigh yourself, your body weight, how much time do you spend on food prep, you know, creating some food. And then um, are you responsible for food prep? Meaning like, do you do it yourself? Do you, you know, buy meals online or do you have a significant other who makes food for you? So these are the nine points of behavior that were looked at and it cracks me up, but just like the national weight control registry, the strongest correlator was eating breakfast. I wish I could say it was something like how much time you spent eating you know, your own food, your own meal prep, how much, you know, I mean, there are some things that we know as practitioners that are really, really important. Uh, I, I know from 25, almost 30 years of experience, a client who eats out more, they're going to have a much harder time succeeding. They're going to have a harder time maintaining. I would never tell a client, Hey, the most important thing out of all of our work, you know, whether we work together for a year, 10 years, the most important thing I can teach you is to eat breakfast. Those words have never come out of my mouth. Even after seeing it duplicated here, it's definitely, it's definitely top of mind now, where at least when I'm talking to people, I, I had a brand new consult video chat with a client this week. I had started with his wife a couple weeks ago. They had both gotten into intermittent fasting. And so they were telling me, well, hey, we don't eat breakfast anymore. Our first meal was at noon. And I had to say, well, you know, 
here's some shocking news for you. With all of the fascination with intermittent fasting and that eight-hour feeding window, statistically, eating early in the day, just like grandma taught you, is still the most important correlate. And we've done research reviews on tangential topics to this. Uh, if you recall, we even looked at one where just shifting that midday meal, like from noon, if your biggest meal is at noon, and then you shift it toward just three hours into like 3 p.m., a massive change in your weight loss rate and, and weight maintenance success. So uh, again, uh, as Rosemary, when she points this out in her narrative explanation, um, she says something I think that is also very, very uh, important and smart and probably accurate. Is there a true physiological reason? You know, does it stimulate your metabolism, that kind of thing? I've seen studies even with children that quality of food, whole food at breakfast, the more protein you give them, the less sugar, the more whole food based, even kids and as well as adults eat hundreds of calories less the whole rest of the day, just based on the quality of that breakfast. So there's a physiological component. But for dieters specifically, Rosemary brings up the fact that it kind of sets the pace for the day. Every decision you make is momentum for the day. If I'm dieting, if I'm in a cognitively restrained eating protocol, and I just kind of blow it and go through the McDonald's drive through or I eat two donuts because an office worker brought them in, I'm pretty much done with the day, right? Like that's where you say, ah, what the hell? And you're, you're just, I'll start again tomorrow. But, but every time you invest something of quality into your day, that's fortification. And so I, I think that's part of it. I, I think the physiology and the psychology is important. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I'm not going to do because it's just not part of why I do these research reviews is go through all of these stats I think for most of you, if, if you're a researcher, if you love this stuff, they're there. You know, you can go look them up. Um, I think most of you really just want to kind of get to the results and the application. So um, if I had to list these out, which were the, so eating breakfast, you know, had the strongest correlation, but then second was time spent on food, which is what I would hope, because that's what I want to teach my clients, you know, get in there, spend the time making some food. Again, that's a fortifying habit and it's going to, it's going to induce higher quality decisions. Um, then it looks like the next one is, um, whether, you know, who is responsible for the food, um, you know, whether it's you or you're relying on other people, you know, just, just having, you know, that, that kind of a plan in place is important, uh, eating frequency with others. I think that shows some accountability. Um, you know, if, if I'm eating all my food in the pantry in the dark by myself, you know, that's going to be. A lot, lot, lot of times a different behavior than if people know that I'm trying to eat healthier and that's part of my new identity. Um, so that, that creates some built-in accountability. Um, you know, meals per day was pretty low. So again, which, which we've seen in previous literature reviews, a lot of times you can eat anywhere from two to seven meals a day, isocalorically, and it's the same. Eating rate, uh, as we have seen, is important, but it didn't show up, you know, here. Um, anyway, let me move on. E eat breakfast, everybody. That's important. Okay. So to this next section of the, uh, the, the study itself, how are percent weight regain and relative weight loss affected by eating behaviors? So now 
how, how, how do we emphasize cognitive restraints? How often do we emotionally eat or eat uncontrolled? And so, uh, so now we're not at a linear regression. It's a multiple linear regression. We're looking at all these things was performed to explore these three uh, eating behaviors, uh, cognitive restraint, emotional eating, and uncontrolled eating on percent weight regained. And this revealed there is no statistically significant interaction between the independent variables of percent weight regain, uh, showing this model was an unclear predictor of percent weight regain. Simple main effect analysis showed that none of the independent variables had a statistically significant effect. And again, this was kind of surprising to me, but out of 83 respondents, I, I can't doubt it. I mean, it, it would show up somewhere on a scatter chart. Um, the multiple regression model for for uh, rate of, of weight loss, no, I'm sorry, relative weight loss was a clear predictor. Um, so so not, not percent of weight regain, but of, of relative weight loss. So there was relative weight loss. So now we're getting into how good was I, not how many pounds I lost, but, but my actual relative weight loss, the percent of my body weight that I lost, that's where it did show up where it wasn't necessarily, you know, in the regain. So it, this may be a little difficult to explain, but let, let me give it a shot here. We're comparing cognitive restraint with emotional eating and uncontrolled eating. So here's me doing what I want to do. Here's me doing what I don't want to do. Here's me doing well on my diet, not doing well. Here's me eating contrary to my goals. Here's me eating aligned with my goals. So with these two variables, the, the, the percent of weight regain. So now that I'm in maintenance, how much sliding backwards am I doing versus what were my ultimate results? How much was my relative weight loss? And this is where Roseberry had to say some of the data may have skewed the fact that, again, if you remember, about two thirds of these people were still actively losing weight and about a third were not. And so because those two populations were together it kind of smoothed out what could have been a correlation here because as she hypothesized, it, it should be obvious that people who have more emotional eating and uncontrolled eating, you know, would, would have more of a percent weight regain and so forth. But here's what comes out in this. This is what's interesting because two thirds of the people about were still actively losing weight that comes out in this study and it's substantiated with other studies that that's an important thing. If you are done, like you, you view this as I've crossed the finish line, completed that project, I lost that weight, hired my coach, we said goodbye, now I'm riding off into the sunset, you have a higher chance of weight regain. Um, but if you're, and so those people were in that pool, so those were studied, you know, so they, but then the, the people who were still actively trying, you know, they, they had a little bit more of a correlation, but it just kind of muted the whole, you know, average for a, a, a correlate descriptor. Um, so anyway, one more thing in case we run out of time, that's, that's important. 
not that you have to constantly be tied to a goal of losing weight, but if, if those of you who have been with us and you've seen many of our research reviews, that the one time we talked about the fact that the more times you try something, and even if you are failing, I, I, I lost weight, gained it back, lost weight, gained it back, lost weight, gained it back. I'm, you know, I'm sliding around a little bit. I'm not being super consistent. The people who try more times have a greater chance of success. And I like to use a simple little axiom. It's, you know, every time you try, it's like pennies in the jar towards success. And, and, and that seems counterintuitive at times in that if I'm failing a lot that I'm reinforcing failure, or if I'm failing a lot, I'm showing that I don't really want this. And I mean, there's all kinds of things that you could say about that, that contextually could have some truth, but at the same time, it really does show that as, as the old parable talks about, it's not how many times you fall, it's how many times you get up. And so, so that, that came across in this, but let's kind of roll on here. So, so what was the strongest predictor of percent weight regain? Previous models were based on the study hypothesis and identified the significant contributors to percent weight regain as a final analysis of these data. Significant variables from prior analyses were included in a multiple regression analysis model to find the strongest predictor of percent weight regain. The dependent variable was the percent weight regain, while the independent variables were the quality of relationship, the coaching relationship, the frequency of support, and eating breakfast frequency, because that showed up in those nine behaviors. Uh, so they wanted to kind of compare all of those. And uh, it ended up being in that order when you compare the four different types of analytics that Rosemary went through that's where she said we could find the greatest correlation. So I'll get to this kind of in the summary, but as just a, a little hint, with all of the research she had done, you know, this whole project took probably about a year, half a dozen deep interviews, 83 surveys, sifting from more than 100 to, to get to that point, doing all of the analytics, the literature review, um, as part of her analysis of the data, she, she had to go and understand what other research projects had uncovered and then explain why it either disagrees with, with previous knowledge, previous studies, or why it confirms it, how it relates back to the, the things investigated here, as well as the uniqueness of the subject groups. But with all of that just shaken down into this particular study, the way it was done, what we found out um, was that the quality of the coaching relationship was the best predictor of outcome. So if you want to have the best results, you have to, and you're doing online coaching. Again, the whole premise is having an online coach. Your number one factor of your success is going to be the quality of your relationship with a coach. Then it comes down to frequency of support. And then it comes to, to like eating breakfast, you know, randomly that, that looks very odd to me, but it's like I said, it's, there is a physiological and a psychological continuance to that. And it just keeps showing up in all the research. So it's, it's a thing. 
All right, so uh, a little bit more of a summary. The study explored associations between aspects of the client perceived client practitioner relationship and uh, percent weight regain and um, relative weight loss in clients that died, doc, who lost at least 10%, blah, blah, blah. Some of these things, I'm sorry, it is, as I said, she had to summarize a lot of this because it's a dissertation and I am probably being too long-winded here. Um, let me skip through a couple of these. Sorry, guys, I want to get to the, the final conclusion here. I already told you some of these things coming up. Oh, here's something uh, definitely noteworthy. Um, in, in other research, it is, uh, it, is, it is kind of well known that when somebody starts this process that you know, is, is called an intervention, it generally peaks at about six to eight months. And I've seen this a lot. So this goes into sometimes the need for a diet break, both physically and mentally, uh, perhaps having other breaks in between, but just know that there's kind of an expiration date on effort and boredom and momentum and motivation. And so for somebody who, as I said, I have a client who recently crossed the 150 pound mark and you know, you see some undulations in there and sometimes it's important to regroup and press pause and have, have some kind of a maintenance break. A lot of things in there uh, to even practice, like before you get to quote the maintenance finish line, like now you've, you've practiced some of these things. Um, but in this sample group, those who are not actively trying to lose weight likely regain some of their initial weight loss, it's, which is something I had mentioned there. But um I wanted to, to show that, let me see here. Um, so participants who are not currently trying to lose weight would have approximately a 6% higher percent weight regain. So that's where that showed people who are not actively trying. She was able to pick out that, that those people, that one third or so who had kind of met their goals or had reported being in maintenance, they had regained about 6% which would be normal for that population, perhaps, you know, 6% higher, I should say, than, than the other group. So, you know, there's, there's, you know, something that's very statistically important, even though it's not related to, um, you know, something that you show in that, that predictor model, it, it was, it was something that after the study was concluded, and you start looking at some of the things that you didn't expect, like, hey, that doesn't look right. And I thought that would be a stronger correlation. And I thought that would predict this more. If it doesn't, sometimes you can uncover that there is a reason why. It doesn't mean that your study is completely invalid or that that part or that question or that variable isn't valid or that you did something wrong. It's just that it, it means you probably need to investigate and you could uncover a very important nuance. I had a statistics professor. I've had to take five or six medical stat classes in my life. My last one was at Harvard. And one of the first things that this professor talked about was like most stats professors teach you to ignore the outliers, like on the scatter chart, like here's the grouping, here's the trend line. This is what you see. If you see something way out here, it's probably just randomly whatever, and we can discount that. She said, holy shit, no, like that may be the most important thing to pay attention to. 
Like, why did that person not follow the, the, the tribe here? Or what happened in that case that made it so different? There could be something really, really important with that. So I, I tell you, I mean, I, I have been so impressed so far. I have not read the second study, uh, Ariel's. This is all Rosemary Hunter's. Uh, just the quality of her research and the writing and the way I can interpret as I'm reading it, you know, she had to flow through this because when you are doing a dissertation, you're a student, first of all, you got other things to do. You're not a practiced researcher. You decide, hey, this may be a cool topic. This may be interesting. Then you get into it. Sometimes you're finding things you didn't expect to find. I mean, I, I've started dissertations in my own academic career that I bailed on because I'm like, I, I once I got into it, I didn't even like it or I was just running into problems. Um, and I, I just see some some challenges she had, some unexpected findings, and she stuck to it and she affirmed what was worth affirming and, and she was able to uncover some nuances. So I really think that that was, that was really well done on her part. Um. Do, 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 do. Let me see here. Like I said, I want to get to a conclusion so I get you guys out of here by the top of the hour. Um, so, so, so when you, I'm going to go back here. So when you look at the things that we can say, this, this, this predicted 16%, this predicted 11% variance. Um, you know, she comes through here and says that may seem like a small increase. However, previous studies reported cognitive behavior interventions of just six months, and that can increase. Uh, scores by over 12 points. And in this group of participants uh, who would correspond to a 2.16 higher RWL value as a current weight of 91 kilograms, uh, basically what she is saying here is compared to kind of an industry average for the parameter she was studying, our clients, if the average weight loss per current weight, average weight of 91 kilograms, was nine kilograms, our clients had lost 11. So, I mean, not a big deal. I mean, you could say, woo, we beat the industry average, but it's not, you know, it's not a lot. It's it's more kind of in line with that. But she said it really, it really does show that these practices, at least through our company, the emphasis of quality relationship building probably skewed that, you know, from nine kilograms to 11, if that's around a 10% increase, you got 10% more value, 10% more progress. Um, you know, maybe that was relative to the fact that that is kind of a company ethic. I I'm interjecting that from outside the study. Um, but that was kind of the nature of the whole study to see if client consultant relationships, client coach relationships had an impact. So um, finally, let me see here. Like I said, I'm going to skip some of this. It just gets so heavy into the stats. There was what I mentioned there, the 11% and 16% of variability that the, the, the prediction, the clients, the quality of the relationship, the frequency of contact uh, on those more qualitative sides, those were clear predictors of relative weight loss and uh, percent weight regain on that inverse relationship, 10% and 16% uh, were the correlation values. So again, you know, they, those were the strongest ones we could note. And as Rosemary said, you know, in some research, 11 and 16% of variability may not seem like a lot, but in this industry, that beats the average. 
And so not only did, did her study show the client and practitioner relationship quality was important and the frequency of communication was important, but it even beat the industry average quantitatively with more weight loss and with, with a higher correlation value. So a, a, a huge, huge study, in my opinion, and it did come down to a pretty significant finding like that. Uh, let me get down to, there was just kind of one, her own conclusion here. I'll read this and then we'll be done. Uh, in summary, aspects of the client practitioner relationship, including the quality of the relationship, the frequency support in the maintenance phase, and help assimilating health and fitness into one's new lifestyle, had interesting associations with weight control and eating behaviors. Aspects of the client practitioner relationship explained almost 11% of the variance in relative weight loss and 16% of the variance in percent weight regain, while they were also positively associated both with cognitive restraints and emotional eating in individuals who lost and maintained at least 10% of their body weight while receiving coaching from the diet doc. From a practical perspective, based on these findings, practitioners should primarily focus on developing high quality relationships with their clients seeking long-term weight control as this was the variable most consistently and unambiguously associated with greater weight loss maintenance success. So a really good concluding paragraph, um, you know, just noting that that was the, the most important factor uh, in all of that. So I know uh, it looks like some people had to drop off. Uh, it's just you and me, Kevin, I believe, unless my screen is not showing more. But um, just to interject you with somebody who works as a professor in a university who teaches nurses, you have your doctor to nursing practice, you, you supervise research, you, you supervise students, you're also a long-term diet doc consultant and coach. You personally have lost over 120 pounds in your life and have kept it off for more than 10 years. What, uh, what do you have to say so far in just a little summary of what we, we saw here today? You forgot to add that I've also done, you know, research, but done, done work on weight maintenance to begin with, uh, in addition to. So um, obviously it rings true on many levels, but it's not at all surprising. It, you know, to us, we're obviously biased, but, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, you know, to bring in self-determination theory, which I have used in my own work, you know, if, if connection is, was so important based on these findings, that's not all surprising considering that's sense of belonging connection is a one of three internal motivators we all need and crave for, for any level of success in our lives. Um, Obviously, the other two, we give them as, you know, as coaches, we give them the autonomy and the competency to understand what they're doing. But it goes without saying we cannot underpin and undervalue the importance of what connection is to someone, even if it's not necessarily tangible in the sense of eat like this, but just to, just to know they are heard and valued. It's I mean, that's why I left primary care is because I wasn't able to give that. And in my way, in my perspective, and here I am now doing that, it's, I think it's just so validating to the importance of support. Same here. You, you know, my story well, in that I left physical therapy when managed care hit, and I, I was used to seeing one-on-one. -on -one. I got to see every one of my patients every day for 30 minutes. 
I, I had a certain schedule and then overnight, all of a sudden I was responsible for over a hundred patients a day. People I would not even see. I was supposed to be responsible for their care, sending aids and assistance to do the treatment. And that's when I'm like, all right, I'm out. I'm going to go do something else. And so with that clinical mindset, I came into nutrition, which I had already done all my graduate work. It was a strong interest because of my bodybuilding career, but to forge into creating what has become this online nutrition coaching model. I mean, it, it, you know, looking back, it's easy to see that the reason I created the model with personal uh, touch points like this and all banking on the quality of that that relationship. But at the same time, I was also back in those days, much more interested in the competency. Let me teach you things. Let me teach you science. Let me teach you how it's done best. And I've really flipped that in the last 25 years to where the quality of relationship is far more important. So I'm happy that came through with this study on our company, uh, because I think had this been done in the first 10 or 15 years of our company, instead of 25 to 30 years removed, like it could have shown a different outcome. Like I was creating an army of technocratic, arrogant dieters who thought they knew all the answers because they were, they were taught that, you know, methodology was king and here come to find out, obviously that's important. There, there are, you know, good, better and best ways to do something, but the quality of, connection is most important as rosemary would say um, i know you got to run as well kevin but uh, it, it just goes to show that even as a coach uh you need to work on your competency you need to understand as much as you can you need to keep your your nose into research and, and best practices but all of that is secondary to how closely associated you are with your clients how supported they feel how strongly they perceive the relationship you have so that should be primary, which was the conclusion of Rosemary's research. And now for the next session or two in these research reviews, we've got another, another study to go through. So uh, that was done on our company from a coach's perspective. So thanks as always, Kevin, for being here. And anybody who watches this on the playback, please feel free to send us any notes, questions, and uh, look forward to those. Thanks, guys.